Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So, welcome to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm Nicholas Carmen, and I'm joined by Yaya Gino, founder of Frame. Now, Yaya has 20 years of experience in real estate development, a former partner at Lipton Rogers Developments and development director at Chelsfield. Yaya has been responsible for delivering £5 billion worth of mixed-use projects from initial concept, from planning, construction and disposal. And I'm not sure how he fits it in, but he's also a mentor at the ULI and Pi Labs and a lecturer at Oxford and Cambridge Universities. So, Yair, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Now, I always start exactly the same. It makes my job very, very easy. Yeah? Um, tell us, how does Chapter 1 begin? Uh, um, chapter 1 for me begins when I left high school at uh, 18, as everyone else, but um, unlike most of your listeners, uh, because I grew up in Israel, I didn't go straight to university, but I um, had to go and do my military service. Um, so I was an officer in the army for um, five long years, and I can say that was chapter one. After I finished with that experience, which obviously didn't teach me anything at all about real estate or development, but gave me a lot uh, of experience in, in leadership and management. Um, I needed a long, proper break. So I took um, a whole um, gap year and I went um, traveling in Asia. I did trekking in the Himalayas. I did a lot of um, meditation in India and a fair bit of partying too. And then when I came back home, I wasn't quite sure yet what I was going to study. So I started with an old passion of mine, which was philosophy. I did that for a few years. Uh, but after a while, I realized that the, the questions that were most interesting to me were of um, social nature. So I decided that uh, the area that I want to focus on was architecture, because I thought this is where a lot of big social um, problems um, find a meaningful, tangible answer. So I spent five years studying architecture, uh, and by the time I was finished, I was um, about 30, um, and I had two major realizations. Um, one was that I absolutely loved cities and buildings, um, and I do to this day. And I thought then, as I do now, that um, our cities hold the key to addressing a lot of the social and mental um, challenges that, um, that we have in our um, society. Um, the other realization I had is that I do not want to be an architect. Uh, I liked design. I still do. I have a good eye for design. But um, I realized that being a designer is not how I'm going to, to express myself in the best way. And I'd much rather be the one uh, working with architects, setting the briefs, setting the challenges, and, and guiding um, the process uh, as opposed to the, the person sitting and, and, and doing the drawings and themselves. Um, so that was a bit of an um, interesting um, turn because, as I was saying, I was about 30 at the time, a point where a lot of your listeners already have quite a number of um, 
professional experience under their belt and I was only getting started and, and where was I going to go? Um, so not turning to architecture, I decided that I'm going to go and do um, consulting work. So I joined a small boutique consultancy in Israel uh, um, and we were doing um, work um, on master planning and um, property advisory with clients ranging from the Ministry of Housing to large developers and lenders. Um, I did that for a few years. Um, and at the same time, I was also doing pro bono work with a big charity that was trying to bridge the gap between development and planning and social justice. So in that capacity, I had the opportunity to work with disadvantaged communities um, and in fact, represent them when they were facing big development projects that uh, they have not been consulted on and were not designed with their interests in mind. Um, I did that for a few years um, until at one point I realized that the only uh, way I can really affect a change and be um, impactful in this, um, in this profession is if I had a much better understanding of finance, um, being the um, lifeblood of how this whole industry works, which is an area that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to up until that point. So I decided to leave Israel, um, come to the UK, and um, I went to Cambridge where I did um, um, a master's degree in real estate finance. As it happened, I graduated at possibly the worst, the worst time imaginable, which was September 2008, just as the um, global financial crisis was um, unfolding. Now, if I just sort of uh, butt in now, you mentioned something about uh, about your age, the combination sort of military service, and then sort of and then a long sort of academic route leading up to that career in in Israel. Presumably, the easy decision would have been then to have once started that career in Israel and in, in consulting is, is is stuck with it not go back into education, not not leave um, your your birth country and come to a, uh, a new a new country and presumably also pile on lots lots of debt as well. Um, why why did you make that decision? Why because I'm sure lots of people listening here would think that that's quite a risky decision. I guess you're right. Uh, what you call risky, I called exciting, um, thrilling and enriching. Uh, and in a way, I continued to take risks and, and make those um, exciting moves throughout my career every every few years when I started to feel that my learning curve is plateauing, um, when I'm starting to be too comfortable in the sense that I'm not really learning um, a lot anymore uh, and things stop to be exciting and I stop to grow in, in what I do, then I'm starting to think, okay, how, how am I going to take this to the next level? Um, and, and this is exactly what I am starting to feel, uh, that uh, in order to grow, in order to do something interesting, exciting, and, and meaningful, I need to take things to, to the next level. And I really felt that I needed to take it to a, um, to a global um, stage, which of course, um, London is, and then so let's uh, let's get back to it then. So two thousand eight, September two thousand eight, 
Right, we know we know the, the the difficulty. I I know all too well the difficulty that, that sort of faced at uh, all levels of 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 careers at, at that sort of stage. So how did how did you manage then to secure to secure that first role? In a way, I I had the the privilege of not being um, shackled by any conventions. Um, I didn't have a conventional career path up until this point. Um, I was a bit too old to start on a graduate program. So I just decided to take a much more direct and personal approach. Uh, I went and studied the whole market. I identified the 30 or 50 companies that I thought were the, um, the most interesting and where the leadership was the most exciting um, to be around. And what I basically did is, is got on the phone, got on the email and started approaching all those um, leaders in, in all these companies. Uh, I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised that a lot of those very established uh, people in leadership positions in the leading companies in, in the market uh, agreed to take the meeting. Maybe it was their curiosity, maybe it was the directness and boldness of my approach. Uh, but a lot of people took the meeting and um, allowed me to, to sit and talk to them directly, um, understand their challenges, what uh, projects they were working on, and, uh, and present myself, really. I didn't know um, what else to do, but turns out it wasn't a bad approach because um, a few months later, I got a call from Sir Stuart Lipton, who at the time was in Chelsfield, along with um, Elliot Bernard. Uh, and he effectively said, look, we, we have a bit of a challenge on one of our projects. Uh, why don't you come and join us just for a short stint, just a few months? Uh, and see if you can help us out. There was only one answer to that question. So, of course, I joined. I was delighted to do that because um, Stuart was um, um, right at the top of my um, list of people that I would like to work with and learn from. Uh, and I joined them, um, Chelsfield, uh, in late 08 uh, to work on the first project that I did with them, which was um, um, Holland Green, the Commonwealth Institute that then became the Holland Green project. And so uh, given your sort of, you know, relatively sort of, let's say sort of early early years of, of sort of real sort of uh, experience in sort of real estate, what, what were you getting involved in at that, at that very earliest stage? So clearly I had no UK experience at that point. But I did have a lot of knowledge uh, around design, generally speaking, around working in consultation and managing a professional team, uh, and also uh, the ability to to work with a wide range of um, consultees, uh, both statutory and uh, in the community. So I joined effectively as the... Um, um, number two on the project, supporting uh, and in later stage um, leading various aspects of the um, of the planning um, stage up to securing the um, resolution to grant planning for the for the project. Now, what was the makeup of the team at that time? What was how big how big a business was it? 
Chelsfield was a small business and it was split between uh, investment strategies and development strategies. Within the development, it was um, even um, smaller still. Stuart was obviously overseeing all the activities, dipping in and out as, um, as he so fit. Mark Wenlock was the director in charge of the project, and I came in um, initially to, um, to support them, and after a while taking on more and more um, responsibilities. I suppose what, I, what, I'm, uh, what I'd like to be able to do is just to, is for anyone who isn't familiar with Chelsfield in particular, is, is really just to impress upon the fact that although this was a small team and it, and it was a relatively sort of new business, I think, when you, when you joined, hadn't it? It hadn't long, long been established, but the people behind it were real heavyweights, weren't they? That is true. And this is the feature of uh, development that in a way, it doesn't matter if you do a very small project or a very large one, uh, a um, one with a small budget or one with an enormous budget, the things you have to do, the actions you have to take are in fact very similar, which is probably why Chelsfield strategy and later on uh, Lipton Rogers' strategy was to only tackle extremely large projects because, again, the amount of time and, and effort that you would need to dedicate to a small or a large project would be the same. It's only that the rewards um, would not. So teams tend to be pretty small, and that is also because project teams tend to be very large indeed, but they don't need to all be in-house. So on a typical project, uh, the developer would engage and manage um, a professional team consisting of something like 20 different consultancies, um, ranging from the lead architect to sometimes um, smaller architectural practices, landscape designers, engineers, of all sorts, legal teams, agency teams, um, and a whole raft of um, specialists from daylight and sunlight to wind to transport and um, and all sorts of things in between. So the developer's role is to um, manage and control this whole show, much, much like the um, producer of a film, uh, but that doesn't mean that you need to um, have very large teams in house in order to do that. But presumably, it has an impact, doesn't it, on on how the people within that business develop? And it's not a very fair question to say how you benefited, because of course you you can't we can't sort of we haven't got a control case whereby you know we can say right how did how did yeah um, uh, do in a in a multi global sort of corporation versus how it how he how he did at, at Chelsfield. But do you can you recognise? how or what influence particularly these you know these real heavyweights people you know let I me mean, put it into perspective sort of so Stuart Lipton and, and Peter Rogers had founded Stanhope hadn't they 20 years before before they started sort of Chelsfield so you know, these guys like I said were already well known in their industry and, and had already had a phenomenal amount of success already and then you you come along and then sort of admittedly you're you're the number two on on already big schemes this is a tremendous amount of responsibility is it at any point, did you feel like you were struggling to cope with that level of responsibility, or being in in the sort of the um, uh, in the spotlight with uh, alongside these guys? 
You are right, but um, I never felt that uh, trepidation uh, at, at the time. It was very exciting um, to be involved in um, these um, fantastic projects and to be around those um, very knowledgeable and um, influential um, characters. Um, I have to say, I never, you know, in my 20 years of um, career, I, I never worked for large corporations. At this point in my career, it's probably too late to start because I I probably wouldn't know how to handle myself in large mm-hmm bureaucratic and um, um, political organizations. I found myself always working in small entrepreneurial um, outfits where um, personalities and uh, individual skills were much more at the, um, at the fore. And that's, that's the only thing I know, really. Now, for obviously people tuning in, these uh, these guys are big sort of real estate sort of fans, and and we've only really scratched the surface about sort of what you, what projects you were involved in during during this time. So you mentioned Holland Greens. Um, what else? What other sort of projects were you, uh, were you involved in? So, in hindsight, I um, find it uh, almost um, astonishing how, within a very short space of time, I was not only involved in, but um, really given the leadership role on two of the largest development projects that Chelsfield had at the time. And they they happened around the same time. One was um, Elizabeth House, which we um, acquired in a JV with um, London Regional um, in April 2010. And the idea was to to develop the the site, um, which is adjacent to Waterloo Station, into a much larger, more modern office and mixed-use scheme and and really kickstart the whole regeneration of the Waterloo area. And the other is Holy Wharf, uh, which is part of the the wider Camden market where Chelsfield had um, um, a minority interest, but within the um, joint venture, Chelsfield was the party that had the most experience and professional knowledge around development and management. And so we were entrusted within the JV with them leading the development of the scheme. And I'm curious, when you when you set out on a scheme like Elizabeth House, knowing knowing it's you know now now it is it, it is now sort of coming um, sort of being developed isn't it it's being uh, it was acquired and being de- um, and being delivered by HB Revis now but that's sort of 12 years on from when it's when it's originally acquired do you have a sense as to whether you were you were you were going to build that out or did you have an, a sort of a plan that you were going to get it to a certain stage and then possibly look for an exit how much of that is is sort of planning how much is that is sort of good fortune uh, no the plan at the time of acquisition was to um, was to take it all the way to um, development as it happened because we undertook um, a very complex and and challenging planning and just to um, remind your listeners elizabeth house is in direct view from parliament square arguably the most sensitive heritage um, location in in the whole of the country so everything we did was under a magnifying and you know under a magnifying glass and and we had to be extremely careful in everything we did and and yet 
we managed to increase the total floor space of the building about um, threefold, as well as obviously um, coming up with um, plans to completely modernize and, and change the arrangement between the, the building and the, and the station. But the upshot was that the planning took a pretty long time, longer than we expected. And this was partly because we had to face um, challenges, including a judicial review. And um, we had to then submit for planning um, for a second time. By the time we then finally obtained planning permission, the appetite for development cooled off a little bit. And so we pause to take some time and, and think through our strategy. And it was around that time that the opportunity to um, to sell the site to HB Revis, as opposed to um, developing it, presented itself and um, Shellsfield and its partners decided to um, to take that, um, that opportunity and sell. So it was an opportunistic um, move was not necessarily part of the original design, but obviously this is uh, this is the feature of um, development. When projects take so long to conceive and to deliver, you have to have optionality built in so as to not be stuck in in one um, particular route. Now, that's, I think that's the that's the commercial sort of point of view, isn't it? That's the um, that's your sort of your your numbers hat on. But personally, is there are there moments of regret that you when you've spent so much time developing these schemes and like you said no no, that sort of blood sweat and tears in order to achieve so much on paper is there is there a moment of regret that you're not able to deliver on it or is that just is that just that yeah that's just the nature of the role it's it's a it's a very good question and i've reflected on that many times the the answer is no that there are no regrets and no sorrows the way i see that um it's a it's a relay race and it really is a group effort i talked earlier about the the large number of people that that work on a single project but um that is extrapolated over time most of these large projects, and uh, you know, we'll talk later about um, 22 Bishopsgate, most of these large projects take many, many years, sometimes well over a decade to realize. And over that period, there may be completely different teams, different ownerships that are involved in, in delivering it. But, but it's everyone working together, in a way, towards the same goal that ultimately result in those um, creations. Those buildings are too big for anyone um, acting alone to do them. So to answer your question, no, there are no regrets. I'm um, very pleased, happy, and proud to have played my little role and and, and did my share in uh, in the realization of these projects. So yeah, I want to now sort of to think about then what comes next in your career. And and so for anyone listening, it's a bit of a timestamp. You've worked at Chelsfield for between 2008 and, and 2014. And in 2014, there, com- there comes a change. And you, move, and you move to Lipton Rogers Development. So the personnel, so Stuart Lipton is, is, the, is the sort of the stable sort of factor. But there is, there's a change of employers. And, and I wanted to ask you, 
you know, because one, it's the theme of our podcast, but it's also something you brought up yourself about, it's about sort of, you don't like when your learning slows, you feel uncomfortable and you, you look, you're always looking for new challenges. So I am curious as to what the catalyst of change was. Was it, was it you personally, or was it external factors in so much as sort of, as, as sort of remaining sort of uh, faithful to people, people who you'd given you that shot at the start? So around early 2014, Stuart started um, thinking that maybe he's had enough time at Chelsfield and maybe he would like to move on and start a completely new business as he does from time to time. And the idea of uh, creating um, Lipton Rogers development came about. So Stuart was going to be rejoined by Peter Rogers. And at that point, it was it was just a, a notion. We didn't have projects uh, at the time. We didn't have um, backing. It was an idea about the type of projects we, we wanted to undertake. Um, I say we because um, right at that um, very, very initial stage, Stuart and Peter came to me and asked me if I would... Um, like to join as a founding member of the team alongside the two of them. And then later um, we were joined by um, Rupert Clark. So it was going to be the four of us. I took some time to think whether I wanted to stay in Chelsfield or join Stuart on this new adventure and decided that adventures are good, that um, it uh, would be more energizing. Um, the ambition was to take on very large and very complex um, projects, even even larger than the ones we did um, during the Chelsea years. And at that point, we already had the thought that the first project, um, the project we were going to tackle was what came to be 22 Bishopsgate, but at the time was still the stump that was the um, unloved and unbuilt part of the pinnacle scheme in the um, um, city of London. So, Adventure, sort of, what does this mean for you personally? Because uh, um, uh, I'm, if if Stuart was on the on the pod, you know, we'd be asking him about sort of, you know, why why make that that leave. But for, but it's you and I sat now here, so I'm less interested about the you know the reasons between you know what you know what was the end of Chelsea and what was the start of of Lipton Rogers, but. For you personally, what what did that mean? What 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 was that going to to allow you to do in this next phase of your career? So again, it's a good question, and to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't fully know at the time. All I knew was that it was going to be a smaller team, and by inference, I would be able to play a bigger role within that team, and. Um, my role would be to lead on all of the development activities of that of that business. It meant that I would have an equity stake in the business, which I didn't have in Chelsfield. So in terms of comp, that would be a, um, a step up. It meant that I would be much more involved in um, management decisions, being a founding partner and, and one of the four um, that that set up um, the business and to also 
be part of the creation of a new business, the the hiring, the the growth of the business, and everything that's uh, implied in that. I have to to admit that I didn't immediately say yes. Um, I thought it would not be um, the right thing to do, so I did take a month or two to think things through and also took the opportunity to ask myself what other opportunities are out there where do i want to be but after um after this period of um thinking about my options i decided that um i certainly have more to learn by being in that new organization and i i took that new position and was a uh, was the risk or was it was the reward worth the risk uh, definitely, <laughs> it uh, it was the beginning of another period of um, fast growth, lots of learning and and excitement. I should also say that around that time, the two large projects that I led within Chelsfield were at the stage that um, we decided to sell, so um, it was um, much slower. The focus of um, the business within Chelsfield changed a little bit from development to um, to investment so um, it just felt like a um, a natural point in time um, to live so yeah it in in hindsight it wasn't such a difficult decision to make all right then so uh, you mentioned about learnings and yeah I think that that's the that's probably the 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 project of, uh, of this sort of pod is, is to unpack some of that so let's talk about I mean, what what were you learning what was and what uh, and if anything what were you struggling to to learn in chelsfield or in um LRD? now in the stage of Lips- yeah lipton rogers so development is um is an interesting business because every project is different they obviously have a lot of um similarities in in the approach and the the stages and the um the types of uh, consultants or um, um tasks that you need to undertake but it doesn't change the fact that each project is different so the degree of carried knowledge that you take from project to project is is always going to be um to some degree limited what you do learn is a mindset, an approach, the way you articulate questions, the way you set a brief, the way you lead a team, and perhaps even more importantly, how you go about handling yourself when you're faced with some unforeseen challenges as is bound to happen on, on any development project and, and particularly on large ones. So especially when you, the, the reason is that um, large projects take longer and the longer you take to deliver a project, the higher the likelihood that something unforeseen will come around and complicate things. Um, that could be a political change. So for example, a vote to leave the EU uh, as as we um, lived through when we delivered them 22 Bishop's Gate. It could be a change of um, the commercial environment, like a recession. It could be a change of a um, technical nature. 
Um, it could be all sorts of things, but um, what you learn is to expect the unexpected and how to handle yourself when that happens. And um, I have to say, again, that um, in a way I learned from the best. Um, Stuart has um, lived through all these challenges before and to see how he conducted himself when um, something like that happened was an invaluable lesson for me. So once more, then uh, another timestamp. You work with Lipton Rogers for 2014 to 2018. And then in 2018, there is there is once more an- another sort of uh, very big uh, leap. And I, I mean, in fact, I won't, I won't even introduce it. I'll let, I'll let you introduce it. I want to know what that leap was and the why. Okay. So we were talking before about um, doing large projects and, and how long that takes i had worked on 22 bishopsgate for about four years um right from the time that it was just a notion a thought that this is a project that's uh, worth tackling and that um, we are in a good position to do that all the way through developing the concept putting the deal together uh, bringing it to funders, pitching it, taking it through design and planning and, and managing a whole raft of um, property-related matters um, along the way. I then completed my uh, bit by delivering a fully formed uh, building designed and with the consent to the construction team, at which point my role on the project was um, coming to an end. And that gave me pause to think, what do I want to do next? Uh, do I want to do another one of those large projects? And if so, do I want to do that within the organization that I was with at the time or in another setting? Uh, and at that point, I decided to take a little bit of a pause because I felt that I've done a number of those large projects and um, I thought that I, I wanted to consider what I wanted to do next. Um, I didn't feel that I could do that um, um, thinking and reflection within LRD. So I told my partners that it was time for me to leave. It came as a surprise to them, but they were supportive and uh, it was all very amicable and um, we're all good friends um, to this day. So I, I left LRD and I set up Frame. Um, and at first, um, I just um, took some time to think where I thought the um, challenges and opportunities in the market um, were. Um, I came to the conclusion that um, there are some big challenges in the uh, residential sector. Uh, and uh, part of the reason why is that it's all very siloed. Uh, and all very uh, much boxed in. And so uh, we have um, PRS being um, its own thing, the residential for sale being a completely different thing. Uh, and we tend to think of um, customers as, as if they fit into one strategy or another, but they don't think of themselves in that way. Um, the, the realities are much more fluid. Uh, and I saw that uh, the market just did not respond to the way that customers are. 
Um, so I thought it would be very interesting to tackle that challenge. Uh, and in particular, I saw an opportunity in creating a bridge for customers uh, between renting and home ownership, uh, a product that would allow people to start as renters and to finish the, the journey in um, full home ownership. It took a while to do to, to get to how we were going to do that. And um, I took a, um, a very um, research-based and, and evidence-driven approach, uh, doing a lot of um, uh, focus groups and uh, interviews with would-be customers. And uh, as we were doing that, um, I was starting, uh, you know, I was joined by a good few people around me, um, all share the same vision. Uh, and we started developing a concept which uh, we thought was going to be very um, exciting at the time. Um, unfortunately, the timing was not um, great uh, because between the elections at the end of um, 2019, which gave everyone um, sort of pause for thought and uh, no one wanted to rush into big decisions before the elections. And then the pandemic starting in early 2020, the timing was just not perfect for um, raising a new fund and um, asking investors to invest in, in a new business. So uh, in spite of the fact that um, the concept is um, very interesting and very much um, what the market needs, uh, we had to put that on hold because of the pandemic. Now, I, I'm, I'm curious to, to ask, Lots of people listening to this, lots of people um, who are starting out their, their careers or into the, the earlier chapters of their, their careers. It's, it's easy to assume, isn't it, that the, the people who have got the, the more senior titles, the people who we think about as, as being very successful, have, whenever they've got to a career junction, have always been met by a green light. And it's been go, go, go. And this, this seems like, you know, this, is, this sounds like a very, very big setback for you. Uh, it it was a setback. Uh, it was um, disappointing, of course, to not be able to to realize the um, the idea that um, we, we set out to to achieve. Especially given that it was purely external circumstances, it wasn't that the idea was not good. But such is life, and. Um, in business, like in business, timing is important and luck is important. And sometimes you just need to get um, to be lucky. You know, I was I was lucky when I got that phone call from Stuart Clipton in um, 08. I was unlucky uh, in other times of my career. But um, whether you are lucky or not, you need to have a clear mind to identify what is possible and what isn't, and just um, carry on. Well, then, uh, I won't interrupt then. You tell me, so how, did, how did you reinvent um, uh, Frame? In May 2020, I got a call from Imperial College's Endowment Fund saying that they decided to seek a development partner for the for a large site that they own in um, West London. Uh, this is the one portalway site near um, North Acton. And this is the largest site that Imperial College have within their endowment um, portfolio. 
which they acquired as an investment in um, 2016, but uh, realized that its greatest potential lay in a um, development route. Imperial are a hugely experienced and extremely sophisticated team, but uh, they do not have the depth and breadth of experience in-house to undertake a significant development like that, which is why they decided to go to the market for um, development managers and and appoint someone to work with them on um, realizing this opportunity. Little did I know at the time that they approached something like um, 10 different organizations, including the most well-known and prestigious um, names within the um, London development scene. But that was just fine because it allowed us to uh, be rather relaxed about uh, our proposition. And we just put our best foot forward and tried to impress them with our creativity, our innovation, and indeed our track record. And for some reason, it worked. We um, we were selected as the... Um, um, as the preferred partner, and in the um, summer of 2020, we were appointed to take on this massive and very exciting challenge. Well, and no doubt, sort of uh, everyone listening will, will be watching sort of with real with real sort of um, interest about sort of how how that develops. Now, we we need to probably start start wrapping up now here, but I've got two questions left to ask, and they sound really simple. One is, what's next? What's coming up? That is um, a very simple but um, equally a very um, difficult question to to answer because we are a very young um, organization. uh, And as such, we almost have to be opportunistic. I would have liked to be able to sit here today and tell you that our strategy is to only focus on undertaking large um, built-to-rent developments or large office refurbishments or that we have a strategy to expand outside of the UK. But but the truth is, and uh, I have to be very honest here, that uh, at this point in our um, growth as a business, uh, we have to be opportunistic and we will respond to the um, opportunities that are um, presented to us. But at the same time, it is also true that we can be a little bit selective and we will only take on projects that we see as being meaningful, that are aligned with our values and where we see an opportunity to uh, further the agenda and to improve uh, the built environment, which is uh, ultimately what um, we are about. So we definitely see the business growing, taking on more development um, challenges. We're currently in discussion with um, a number of um, potential um, clients. Um, this is a combination of investors and landowners that uh, would like to work with us and um Uh, benefit from our extensive development experience. Uh, But we also have a couple of ideas that go beyond pure development where we see an opportunity to use our knowledge of um, 
development, asset management, and um, creativity to, to do some meaningful things in, in our cities. I, I, I appreciate I'm a little bit vague, but uh, um, hopefully that uh, will become clear uh, over the um, coming months. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, and to the last question then before we wrap up is, you, you, know, sort of, you and I have been sort of talking offline and, and, I, and I know how important mentoring is, uh, is for you as well. And I, and I hope there's lots of people listening to, to this who, could, who can benefit from that. What would you want someone to take away from this recording? And what would you want to, to offer up to, to them in, in terms of advice? So I have three takeaways, you know, for whatever they're worth. Um, one is that you are the manager of your own career. Do not expect others to do it for you. Do not expect others to uh, promote you or elevate you or give you the right tasks. You know, you may get lucky, uh, but you need to make active decisions all the time about what you want to do and where you want to be. And this requires a degree of introspection. So everyone needs to spend some time thinking about what is it they are really good at and what is it that will fill them with joy um, that may or may not be what they're um, doing at this very moment in time. So that's that's my first advice. There, there's no such thing as a career autopilot, which I'm sure you'll have views on. My Second advice is that don't worry if you can't see the whole career path ahead of you. I can talk from my own experience that um, things only make sense when when you look um, when you look back. At the time, all you can do is just look at the options and opportunities ahead of you and choose what seems to make the most um, sense at the time look for the opportunities where you are learning the most and growing and enjoying, uh, even if you're not quite sure uh, where it is necessarily going to um, to lead you. Uh, and my final bit of advice is that work isn't everything. Of course, it is important. And of course, we want it to be meaningful and fulfilling. But it is important to leave enough time for one's partners and if you have them then kids as well enough time for friends and also importantly enough time that things that interest you outside of work because this will not only make you a better human being but ultimately also will make you better at your job so job is important but other things are important as well is my little piece of advice i think that's a uh, it's very sound advice yeah thank you very much for joining me uh, and recording this session um and i look forward to with real interest hearing more and more about the development of uh, of frame uh, and its sort of future um and no doubt sort of making a really big sort of mark on our industry so yeah once more thank you very much for joining me The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development 
makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast. And we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.